Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. I would start off today a little bit differently than normal with just some random thoughts that are on my mind, which I am confident you will not like. It's been a dreary weekend, rained all day yesterday, and so that put me and perhaps you in a bad mood. Pastors often have to sort of bite their tongue. We don't always get to say everything we want to say because Of course, we don't want to offend the people in the church, and so for the sake of our job and for the sake of church harmony, I often keep quiet about several things, but these are my thoughts, and I have a right to share my thoughts and my opinions, and that means you're going to have to hear them. And while I understand that you may not like them, and therefore you have a right to be angry with me and send me an angry email if you choose... Or you can post something online about me, or you can fire off a text in protest. I realize that if I have the right to say what I'm going to say, then you have the right to do those things. And so I want to make three or four just general observations in areas in which I've been sort of holding my tongue. Number one, I realize now that I have lived in Knoxville longer than I've lived any other place in my life. But I have never been a UT fan. I will never be a UT fan. And wearing an orange tie does not make me a UT fan. And those of you, and I realize that this is the majority of you, those of you who are UT fans, quite frankly, I think you're settling for something less than best. And I think you probably know what the best is. Let's talk politically. I don't usually dive into the political realm. But if you don't believe like I believe politically, if you don't vote for who I vote for and see things the way I see them in the issues, then quite frankly, I think you're deceived about what's going on in our nation. In fact, I might go a step further than that and say you're just downright ignorant of the true issues and how they need to be solved. Let's talk spiritually. Frankly, based on the way some of you live and talk, I question your salvation. I'm wondering if you're really a believer. Or are you, as the Bible says, a wolf in sheep's clothing? So let me just finalize all this by saying, your grandkids are not as smart as you think they are. (laughs) They're not as cute as you think they are. And no, they are not going to change the world. Now, how's that for an introduction? We don't like to be insulted, do we? We don't like people to talk derogatorily toward us, to be ridiculed or demeaned. Now, for the record, everything I just said, other than the UT comment, was not really my opinion. I just wanted you to feel insulted. I just wanted you to sense what it's like for someone to be talking negatively about you because that's exactly what we often do toward others And yet, when it is done to us, we don't like it, especially when that is true of our faith. 
I have never had a desire to be a politician, but I certainly wouldn't be a politician in this day and age. Because everything in their life is scrutinized and vilified and regardless of what they say or do or believe, half of the country is going to demonize them. I wouldn't want to be an official. In fact, I told one of the guys over at Minots the other day when he told me he officiated small college basketball as a side job, I told him I would never do that. Because I don't want a job where I'm constantly yelled at and I've done my share of that toward officials. And there's no wonder there's a shortage of officials today when we sit in the stands and yell at them. What are you, blind? How many bad calls are you going to make? I said that one time to an official at Northview Academy. And he heard me. And he turned around and looked right at me and he said, he said, what did you say? And I repeated it slowly. I said, how many bad calls are you going to make? It's a wonder I didn't get thrown out of that game, but I didn't. So I wouldn't be an official because I couldn't deal with all of that. I wouldn't be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I've never been nominated for it. I don't expect to be nominated for it. And if I were nominated for it, the amount of votes I would get would be embarrassingly low. But I wouldn't do the job even if I had the votes. Because what used to be an honor is now anything but that. It's like so many other positions of leadership now where there is constant criticism, people ridiculing whatever you say or do, often without knowing most or any of the facts, but never willing to admit that. Well, we've come to the last of our Beatitudes, and this Beatitude, you might have guessed, speaks about persecuted people. And while we often think of persecution in the realm of martyrdom, that is death for one's faith, and it certainly is that, most of us will never face that. So because we will never face death for our faith, does that mean that we will never face persecution? Well, if that were the case, then there's no point in me preaching this sermon. There's no point in us going over this last beatitude if persecution is only death for our faith. But because persecution often comes in smaller ways, which means we will face it, then we do need to look at this beatitude and we do need to apply it to our lives. The truth is, as we live out the other seven beatitudes, beatitude number eight will become an issue in our life. Invariably, as we faithfully live, one through seven, number eight is going to happen. We are in our last beatitude, as I've said. It is in verses 10 through 12. Some people take verses 11 and 12 and, and group, group it with what follows. That way, the structure of the beatitudes remains in, in hand or on, on course. But I'm using it with verse 10 because I think verses 11 and 12 simply amplify what is said in verse 10. And perhaps this is a longer beatitude because it is the one that is most misunderstood and most misapplied. Which of course is saying something because the reality is all of these beatitudes have been difficult to hear. So we're going to read for the last time this entire section and then our focus will be verses 10 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then our beatitude for today. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we're going to start this morning by talking about the prospects of persecution. And we have to start there because if you don't think you are a prospect for persecution, that is, if you don't think you're ever going to face persecution as a believer, then obviously the rest of the sermon is simply not going to apply to you. Again, we tend to think of persecution as the severe form, something we've not had to face in our country. We do read about pastors around the world who are arrested, Christian pastors who are arrested in countries that are not Christian. We hear about churches that are burned across the world because they are Christian churches. Historically, we could look at something like the classic Fox's Book of Martyrs, that tells the story, especially in the early centuries, of all of those who gave their life for the faith. Or we might look at more recent examples, like Dr. Bill Wallace, a medical missionary in China. You do know that Wallace Memorial Baptist Church, down on Merchants, a fellow Southern Baptist Church, is named in honor of Dr. Bill Wallace, the medical missionary in China. When the Japanese invaded China during World War II, he and his staff were forced to flee the hospital that they were working in. But after the war was over, they returned to Wuchow, and they rebuilt rebuilt the hospital and continued the ministry. But then when communism began to sweep over China, once again, most of his associates were forced to flee, but Dr. Wallace decided to remain behind, refusing to flee as so many of the other missionaries did. The communists eventually planted evidence against him and arrested him, telling people that he was an American spy, that he was on Truman's payroll. They knew better, however. They continued to beat him in prison, attempting to get him to confess, which he did not. And eventually, after one of the beatings, he died in prison. They told the people that he had committed suicide. And again, the people did not believe them. They buried him in an unmarked grave. But because of all that he had done for all the people in that region of China, at the risk of their own lives, they did not allow the grave to remain unmarked. Instead, they paid for a monument out of their own money. And on that monument, it simply said, for me to live is Christ. You can actually go down to Greenwood Cemetery on Taswell Pike. And there is another monument there in that cemetery. And the next time you're in there, I would encourage you to look at that. Another monument to Dr. Bill Wallace, medical missionary in China. So while these things do occur on the mission fields of the world, even to this day, it is not the experience of most of us. 
And yet Jesus did say, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Jesus did say, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? And Paul chimes in when he writes one of the letters to Timothy, and he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So there must be some form of lesser persecution that all believers who are faithfully following Christ or who are living out these beatitudes that we've been talking about, this kingdom living that we will encounter. And that certainly does seem to be the target of these verses because verbal attacks are included. And as we are living out these beatitudes, we are going to stand out as different from the world, which means we will be targeted. And you know as well as I do that that is increasingly happening in America. It might be that we will be excluded from certain things or we will be ridiculed. It might come in economic forms, meaning we will be passed over for a job that we have really earned, but someone else will get it because they don't like our faith. So there might be social or economic consequences. Perhaps it's merely the way you're living your life because you are living a life of righteousness, not a life of perfection, but a, a life of righteousness, you are subtly testifying to others that their life doesn't measure up. So your life of righteousness reminds them of their life of sin. And rather than repent, it is much easier to persecute. And so they lash out at you, calling you self-righteous or other names. Now we need to be honest and consider the opposite. That is, if we are not a prospect for persecution, the question is, why not? Well, one answer I've already alluded to, and that is we may not simply be living the life of a Christian. We may not be living out these beatitudes, and in which case, the difference in our life is not on display, and therefore there is no reason for people to persecute us. We are, in essence, keeping our faith a secret. And therefore, there is no experiencing any kind of negative consequences. A second option, if we are not experiencing persecution, might be that we have isolated ourselves with other Christians. That is, we simply don't have any friends or associates outside of our Christian circles. We stay within the church body and our immediate family, and most of them are probably Christians as well. And, and then again, there's no reason to be regularly facing persecution, this is actually going to be the topic of our conversation next week. Because next week we're going to hear Jesus say, no, you've got to be salt of the earth. You've got to be light to a dark world. And we can't do that if we simply stay within our Christian framework. Option number three would be somewhat similar to the first, only it would involve us collectively, meaning the church has changed. Maybe the church has become so much like the world that we're no longer persecuted. Maybe in an effort to win the world, and we've said we've got to identify with the world in order to win the world, that maybe we've crossed over the line and we're so much like the world that, again, there's no difference to discern and therefore no reason to persecute. The last option, if we're not prospects for persecution, could be that the world itself has changed. In other words, when Jesus made those statements in the first century, 
about all who follow him will face persecution. Maybe that's no longer the case in our country. Maybe the world has come closer to Christ and therefore there's no need to persecute. But I'm confident you don't believe that. In fact, I think again, you're seeing that the world is changing, but in a different direction. I mean, even in America, even what we call the Bible Belt, the opposition to Christianity is growing. The rhetoric against our faith is more heated. And sometimes it comes from within the church and obviously sometimes without. Deconstructing one's faith is now a popular journey. I don't even know really what that means. But it's a popular slogan now that I need to deconstruct my faith in order to dig into how the church has harmed me as I've grown up. And so I think most of us believe that persecution against Christianity is on the rise. It's on the rise in our country and it is likely to continue to get worse. But again, Jesus reminds us if the world hates us, they hated him first. And because we are not like the world, it brings hatred from them. And yet in many respects, we've grown comfortable as Christians because we've had the power. Being a Christian in years gone by and being involved in a church, especially in a small town, and I'm not including Knoxville in that, but if you go to small town America, years ago it was almost necessary for you to belong to a church in order to have a decent standing in the community and then to have some business opportunities as well. And on a broader level, we've banded together as Christians to have a powerful block and we've elected leaders. And we have been proud of our influence upon the wider culture. We've been the majority for so long, at least in name. And the fact of the matter is probably we still have a named majority. And because we were the majority, at least in name, we have enjoyed the benefits of getting our way. But again, much of that has already changed and continues to do so, which is one reason we're struggling with so many of the changes that we're seeing in America. All of that to say, if you're a believer living out the Beatitudes, you are a prospect for persecution. But now we need to look secondly at the purposes of persecution. And I want to do this in two different ways. First, the word purpose means reason. And therefore, we want to examine the reasons for being persecuted that form the basis for this beatitude. Because this is not a blanket statement that any kind of persecution that you endure is persecution for your faith. It is a specific kind of persecution that we are talking about. And then secondly, we want to look at a few things that God does in us or through us because of persecution. So let me state the obvious first. We are not talking about persecution for your poor choices. We are not talking about persecution because of sin in your life and the consequences thereof. There is no promise for blessing in these cases, but rather a call to repent and a call to respond in wisdom. Neither are we talking about you being persecuted because you're obnoxious or tactless. I had a seminary professor years ago who would occasionally just start out in a sprint from the seminary and run around the streets of Memphis yelling at people, yelling at people to repent and come to Christ or they're going to go to hell. 
I didn't think it was a good evangelism strategy then. I don't think it's a good evangelism strategy now. And any kind of negative consequences he suffered for that, in my opinion, is not persecution for the faith. That's persecution for being obnoxious. I don't see Jesus using that evangelism technique. The same could be said for someone who's nagging or berating, the one who carries around the big Bible and proverbially beats everybody over the head with it. Again, I don't see Jesus using that method either. Now, you might say, well, he was pretty rough with the religious leaders, and he was. But he was rough with them because they had no interest in what he was saying. They weren't going to convert to belief in him, or at least the vast majority of them were not. They were already in opposition to him. My point is simply that all persecution is not alike. So be careful in claiming the high road and rejoicing in persecution when the reality is it's coming because of your own foolishness or poor choices. So what kind of persecution are we talking about? Well, it's stated very clearly here. When you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Again, that means that you're living the kind of life that we've been talking about in this series or as we stated earlier, you are faithfully following Jesus. As disciples, our goal is to be more like Jesus, and that is God's goal for our life as well. So the more we are remade into the image of God, the more our righteous life is going to expose, whether we say anything or not, the unrighteous life of others, and it is going to lead them to lash out. Now, that is not always the case. In fact, in the next section, we're going to see that our good works might actually lead people to glorify God. But they might also see our good works and persecute us. And the Sermon on the Mount is stating both of these possibilities. Our righteous living can lead to praise of God or persecution of us. And over the course of our lives, we're likely to experience both. There is a second phrase in these verses that tells me what kind of persecution is in mind here, and it's the last few verses, uh, last few words of verse 11. On my account. This is clearly a general statement that would encompass anything we do in the name and for the cause of Christ. Again, with an understanding that we are not doing so arrogantly or ignorantly or selfishly. But when we are genuinely living and serving on behalf of Christ and we are persecuted based on it, then the promises that we'll talk about shortly will indeed apply. Now let's move to the second aspect of the purposes of persecution. And that is to talk about not the reason why we're persecuted, but what is the purpose of God in us being persecuted? What is God doing in and through us as a result? Well, first of all, it is yet another sign that you are, in fact, a genuine believer. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 10 says, which again is another way of saying that you are a genuine believer. It's actually, in a strange way, an assurance of salvation. When we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when we are persecuted in the name of Christ, then it is a sort of a backward way of being assured of our faith. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that when we are disciplined by God, take heart because a father disciplines his children? That doesn't mean that we enjoy it, but it means we know that we're one with the father. 
And in a similar way here, we see persecution. In its own way, an assurance of salvation. Secondly, it's also a sign of the Holy Spirit's work within us, making us more like Jesus. Remember, we said just a moment ago that that is our aim in life and that is God's aim in our life. And as we endure persecution, we are giving evidence that this is moving toward the goal of what God has for us. He is using persecution to perfect us in Christ. Not make us perfect, but to perfect us to help us learn and grow, and we are forced to draw closer to him during difficult times. If life was always smooth sailing, most of us would have little motive to go deeper in our relationship with God. I mean, if everything was just like we wanted it to be, we wouldn't have to cry out to God, we wouldn't have to go deeper in our walk with the Lord, but during those times we do. Lastly, at least on this point, it allows us to be a testimony to others about how God has sustained us and brought glory even in the midst of trying times. And again, that's where the Sermon on the Mount turns next. So I'll leave that to next Sunday. But I want to conclude thirdly with the promises for the persecuted. I mean, why would any of us willingly subject ourselves to such treatment when we said at the very outset that we don't like to be insulted, that we don't like people to talk negatively about us or demean us or ridicule us in any way. So why would we do this? Why would anybody do it even to the point of death? And yet we read in these verses that we are to rejoice and be glad. I mean, if that's not countercultural, I don't know what is. If that's not unnatural, I don't know what is. Because that's not our natural reaction to insults. We would much more likely find another avenue, maybe be resentful. Someone says something about us, whether it's about our faith or not, we just become resentful. We may make our very best effort at appearing stoic on the outside in order to hide our inward bitterness. But Jesus doesn't say here, when people persecute you, keep a stiff upper lip and don't let them see your anger. That's not what he says. He says, rejoice and be glad. It would be natural for us to want to take the next step and retaliate. They persecuted me for my faith? Well, I'll show them. I'll persecute them for something that they like or something that is important to them. And yet, if you still have your Bibles open, just flip over to the end of chapter 5. We're jumping ahead in the Sermon on the Mount. But verse 43 says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's normal. I mean, that's natural, right? I love those who love me. I hate those who are my enemies. But the next verse says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that's the same thing we're saying here in these verses. And all of this underscores how utterly impossible it is to live out these beatitudes in our own strength and how this Sermon on the Mount ultimately points us to Christ because we've got to be looking at these things saying, I can't do this. I can't rejoice in the midst of persecution. That's not the natural reaction. Of course, we could also retreat, isolate ourselves from anybody who might persecute us, but then again, we wouldn't have a chance to impact the world, which again is the topic of conversation next week. But Jesus says the proper response is to rejoice. 
This is the true Christian reaction. Now again, rejoice is not the same thing as enjoy. Nobody is saying that you have to enjoy being persecuted. He is not calling on us to pursue persecution and to desire it and to go out of our way to find and experience it. But at the same time, he's also not saying that we are to avoid it at all cost. Because, because, because of all the things we've been talking about and the promises that we are about to talk about, we can rejoice and be glad in the midst of it. You remember a story in the book of Acts where some of the apostles were arrested, they were beaten, and they were thrown into prison. They were eventually released, but when they were released, they were instructed quite, quite urgently to not speak in the name of Jesus any longer. But what did they do when they got out of prison? They didn't walk out of jail defeated. They didn't rush to their friends who had been praying for them to show them all the bruises and talk about how difficult it had been and to complain about it all. Instead, the Bible said they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. We can rejoice because we are once again promised lasting and abiding satisfaction. Remember, that's what that word blessed means. And we find it twice with this beatitude, verse 10 and 11. Now, I've not reiterated that word every single week, but since we're finishing up with the beatitudes, I will mention it. That's not temporary or superficial happiness. That is rich, lasting, abiding satisfaction in our relationship with Christ. This is not a promise that if we pursue life in the kingdom that we are going to be pain-free or that it's going to be devoid of obstacles, but God will be with us and God will meet our every need. Secondly, we can rejoice and be glad because we are promised a great reward in heaven. Now, we are not told what that reward will be, but we are told it will be great. So surely we can trust that God, when he says, I'm going to give you a great reward, that it will be beyond anything that we could imagine. Chief of which, of course, is the very fact that we will be in heaven, in the presence of God, to dwell with him eternally. Now let me make a few other comments on this. Again, we notice that the rewards are not promised for this life, which means you can do everything right you can pursue righteousness, purity, and peace, and yet suffer persecution as a result. And that might not ever be made right in this life. You might not ever see justice. You might not ever see those who have persecuted you get what is coming to them. None of that is promised. But we are promised the positive results in the future, in the next life, not in this life. Now understand that this truth, or not understanding this truth, has led many to be discouraged. We are promised rewards in heaven, so we must be content to persevere and wait. Now, I realize that you don't like to wait that long. And I realize that immediate results are much to be preferred than results far off in the future. I mean, you don't motivate your children to do what you want them to do by saying, I'll give you such and such in 20 years if you do this today. That's likely not going to motivate them. 
That's why you have to convince your young adults when they're first starting out a career to save for retirement because retirement is so far off in their minds that it doesn't seem right to save money for that. After all, they need and want the money now. And so we have to convince them that it's valuable to wait, to put aside a little bit for the future. So while waiting rewards in heaven seems like a long way off, I want to remind you that we often say and think the opposite. Because immediately when you hear that, great is your reward in heaven, you say, well, that's, that's forever. That's way down the road. Or is it? Not according to what we say. Aaron started his newsletter article this month by saying, can you believe it's April and Easter is just around the corner? We make statements like that all the time. Is it Christmas already? Can this possibly be another new year? Or all of those posts I see, and I really do need to get off of all that stuff, with you saying, I can't believe little Johnny or little Mary, whatever their name is. I can't believe they're one or 12 or 18 or 21. Time flies by, does it? Well, that's what we post all the time. So which one's true? Can I wait for the rewards in heaven? Because after all, time indeed does fly. Or is that so far off that I can't fathom that? And if that's the case, then stop making those posts. Because we say all the time that time flies. And if that's true, then we can wait for our rewards in heaven. So let me say one more thing about promises to the persecution, to the persecuted before we wrap this up. We also notice that we are not alone. Instead, we have great company. We've talked about the fact that as followers of Christ, we will join him in being persecuted. And in fact, Paul's, one of, one of his famous verses is that he had a desire to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And we know and we love that verse. Some of you have memorized that verse, but that's not the whole verse, is it? That I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then we leave off that next line, which says, and the fellowship of his suffering, the sharing in the suffering of Christ. So we are more like Jesus when we are persecuted on his behalf. But this verse also says that in some sense, we are united with the prophets who have gone before us. It certainly doesn't take much digging in the Old Testament to find prophets who were persecuted, who were beaten and imprisoned and ultimately killed. Or if you don't want to search through the Old Testament, just go to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, where there is a summary given. And that summary says that some were tortured, mocked, beaten, put in prison, stoned, sawed in two, killed with the sword. And it also adds that none of these received the promise in this life. Just like we said a moment ago, the promise is not for this life, it is for the next it is often easier to endure a burden when we are not enduring it alone. When we have someone by our side who is going through it with us, a friend perhaps who has gone through something similar in years gone by, such companionship gives us hope and encourages us to endure hardships like they did. And that's what Jesus is reminding us here. We are not alone, but we are united to him and we follow in the footsteps of all of these prophets who have gone before us who were persecuted for the cause of Christ. Well, this brings to a close the beatitude portion of the Sermon on the Mount. 
So next week we will launch out into the rest of the sermon, but I'm going to go ahead and warn you, it does not get any easier. I realize that in many ways, this has not been the kind of sermon that you would want to hear on a Sunday morning. It's not been evangelistic or for that matter, very encouraging. We much prefer either one of those. Give me an evangelistic sermon that shares the gospel with those who need to come to faith in Christ and maybe we'll see someone saved. Or at least give me an encouraging sermon for the, for the faithful saints so that we can walk out of here and know that we are on the right path and be encouraged in our walk with the Lord. Hopefully I do some of those on a regular basis, but we need to be balanced in our proclamation. Frankly, we don't do anybody any good if we're not balanced, and I'm afraid that we don't even know what balance is anymore. You can't listen to the news because the news isn't balanced. They slant everything to what they want you to hear. They slant the headline so you'll click on it, and then it doesn't even say anything about what you think it's going to say something about. They want to tell you what to believe rather than just report the facts and let you come to a conclusion, and that is true on both sides of the aisle. And so I'm not sure we even know what balance is anymore. But we need to be balanced in our proclamation. The gospel is, in fact, good news. In fact, I've shared some of that this morning. We've seen that great is our reward in heaven someday. But we also need to acknowledge that there are difficulties in the Christian life. And we don't do anybody any good when we hide this truth. In fact, if our evangelistic efforts are always only positive, then what we wind up getting is a lot of people who make professions of faith in Christ and quit. Because when they realize that their Christian life doesn't measure up to all of the promises you gave them, they get discouraged and give up. And we see that all the time. You've heard the testimonies. You've heard someone talk at length about all of the difficulties of of coming to faith or, or what they did prior to coming to faith in Christ, and then they'll make some statement, summing up their Christian life by saying, but ever since then, it's been one blissful moment after another. But that's not reality, is it? I mean, that's just not the truth. The truth is we do face obstacles, and the truth is we do face persecution. Listen again to the Apostle Paul. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. No one is going to be persecuted all the time, but every genuine believer is going to be persecuted some of the time. But I remind you that you can't insult a dead man, right? And aren't we dead in Christ? We've been crucified with Christ? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of salvation that does indeed come with great rewards. But we also must acknowledge that along this path of sanctification, there is likely to come some form of persecution. We are grateful that we do not suffer it as some do around the world. We are not in danger because we've gathered this morning to worship you. We don't have to worry about being arrested on our way home, even though we know that some around the world do.
that some do have to meet in secret because they're not allowed to meet in the open. And while we do not endure all of those things, we do face persecution in much smaller amounts. So when we do that, remind us of the perspective that being insulted or ridiculed for our faith doesn't compare to being martyred. But at the same time, you've promised that these things are going to happen. Because we follow you, we're going to face some of the similar things that you did. So help us to be strong, courageous, endure, persevere, even in the midst of growing persecution in our country, that we might continue to proclaim your glory and your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Thank you.